Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 553. And I swear to God, this is a classic Distraction Pieces episode. I talk today with David Holmes. And to give you a brief history, because we get straight into it in the conversation, David Holmes has an amazing documentary out, HBO documentary made about him called The David Holmes, The Boy Who Lived. David is a stuntman, was a stuntman, and was Daniel Radcliffe's stunt double for all of the Harry Potter series until the final two-part film in which he got an injury to his spine and, you know, it changed his life forever. As we spoke, again, we get into the developments of his injury. As we spoke, David is in a, a wheelchair and has, I guess, limited use of, you know, of of his body. But by God, does he make the most of it. Dude, the show, the film was called The Boy Who Lived. The, the guy continues to live just an astounding life. Yeah, I love this conversation. It was really good fun. I'm just going to let us get into it because it's, it's brilliant. As ever, we're brought to you by speechdevelopmentrecords.com. That's where you can get all sorts of merch. Patreon.com forward slash Pip, where you can support the podcast for like a few dollars a month. That really helps pay for all the, the, the running costs. And twitch.tv forward slash Pipio is where you can keep up to date and chat and hang out. I have loads of people coming into the Twitch channel and going, oh shit, like we can actually just interact here and talk about things and ask you questions and engage directly and it's like yeah that's that's kind of the point of it (laughs) so yeah head over there if you fancy any of that if you have any questions for me particularly as i'm not using that much social media these days it's the best spot to get a direct question and answer yeah this is an amazing episode and david's film is amazing so if you haven't already seen it you can pause now and go and watch it or you can listen to this and then go and watch it. But it's so, so worth your time. Both of these things are. So this is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 553 with David Holmes. Yeah, you got me. Yes. So I'll try not to get too elevated for your sound levels. <laughs> you get as elevated as you want. Um, I'm here today with David Holmes, and I've planned the podcast. I've made loads of notes. In the 10 minutes I've been in your house, I feel like we've got enough that we could talk about, and I could not look at my notes at all. But y- y- yeah, how are you, man? I'm how right. are you as I'm, the year comes to an end? I'm alive in some capacity, and now the story's out. Yeah. So that's just been really humbling like every day we read news articles of humans but not much humanity yeah if i open my social media i'm reminded there's a lot of humanity out there and the empathy that has come across and the way it's connected to people from all walks of life able disabled you know people going through stuff and it's just been really like like lovely it just reminds me that 
saying empathy is a bridge between compassion and understanding. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was like, it's nice to know that there's still empathy and lots of humanity out there. Mate, it's a beautiful documentary. It really is is something else. And I know when we've been chatting, you've said you've not kind of been been able to to watch it yourself because of the kind of emotional um, side of it. But the first note I made was I want to let you know that your mates love and respect you so fucking much. That's the thing that comes across in the documentary. Just Mark, Daniel Radcliffe, everyone, just the absolute adoration had me in tears so often. It's a beautiful thing. They have me in tears all the time. My boys, I love them. Like, and I'm really fortunate to have so much love in my life. Yeah. And that's why I am like I am. Yeah. You know, I know that it takes a certain level of what's in me to be able to live past what, you know, the, the hardships that I live with. Yeah. But quite often they're the legs that support me and when mine don't. And, uh, like, my best friend Tommy, he's just left, but he works yeah. for me. And uh, I've been in his arms. I saw as, him in I, I saw him in, in the background. I was, yeah. I was all excited because yeah. I've seen him in the documentary. I know, so like, yeah. I know, he's, I know my, he's the hero <laughs> of the film and he's the hero of yeah. my life. You know, I've been in his arms as much as his own son. Yeah. Maybe even more, like over the yeah. years we've been working together. And uh, there's, uh, you know, like accountability. I have accountable men in my life. Yeah. Um, I hold myself accountable and I hold them accountable and they hold themselves accountable and they hold me accountable. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I'm really thankful for that. You know, like yesterday, uh, me and Tommy had a nightmare going up to Pinewood. We had a very interesting time at South Men's Services trying to help clean me up. It was... Yeah. but. I look back and laugh at it now, yeah. you know, like I was in the front seat of my car and I'd made a little situation of myself and he actually wound the window down, pushed my head into the driver's seat and then locked the car. So as he walked away to go and get some cleaning up supplies from the service station, the alarm's going off. And I just thought, if <laughs> if a car thief come and saw that my car with the window down was uh, an easy nick, and they looked in the window and saw me with my backside hanging out and like just sitting there with my head in the passenger in the driver's seat. <laughs> um, I think they'd have probably swerved the nick. Yeah. So um, yeah, no, it was. Uh, but that's what I mean. Like the way Tommy handles me in those mm. situations, it was like normally I would turn around and say no, like my body's won this battle. Yeah. But recently I've just regained more strength from a new relationship in my life. Yeah. And uh, it just taught me like it's a mild inconvenience like you've still got places to go and then I went to the stunt do at Pinewood yeah and uh saw all of my old friends like and they presented me with my certificate to say I'm back on the stunt register amazing which is just awesome um so I asked one of them to set me on fire in a wheelchair <laughs> that would be nice you know do a full head burn in a chair be a good photo for the book yeah that would be amazing um and uh it was I saw Eddie Kidd there that yeah. I haven't seen for ages and, uh, yeah, just being in a, a room for, and reminding people, it's the best job. It really is the oh, best job. And it's so overlooked as well. I was chatting to Joel Edgerton about this recently because his brother's a stunt man as well, Nash Edgerton. He's, one again, one of the best. And I'm lucky to be mates with Jacob Tamuri, who's an amazing stunt coordinator, and my friend Aisha Hussein, who's a real up-and-coming stunty. And your mates, like Mark and others, who have yeah. become some of the best in the yeah. business, and it's... It's a job that's evolved, right? A lot. Because at first it was yeah. 
nutters essentially yeah, <laughs> who are just up yeah. for doing dangerous things absolutely and then it's yeah. developed into people who are so skilled in doing things that look dangerous or things that are dangerous safely well you've got to be able to do it twice still. three yeah. times sometimes yeah. you know back in the days when we was rolling celluloid yeah. you know one hair in the gate and all yeah. of a sudden you've got to do the gag again yeah so the idea is to push the boundaries of stunt action for cinema yeah um for the people in the theaters but also to incorporate as much, like to take the risk out as much as possible. Yeah. And my accident was a catalyst for further, like it, moving the boundary of what safety is and the way wire work is done. And yeah. there was like new working practices incorporated across the stunt industry around the world because of it. Mm. And, uh, you know, I'm a person like, there's a dark cloud, but I look for the silver lining always. Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful to hear. And you mentioned accountability and maybe an adjustment in perspectives because of a new relationship in your life and things like that Mm. with the stuff that you've been through it would be easy to to go off the rails to be angry to be nasty to be kind of fuck the world kind of thing yeah but you're not that and it seems that that's because of your friends and the the people in your life who won't let you be that well they'll call you a dickhead if you if if you act yeah do you know what's the hardest is seeing your pain in your loved one's eyes. Yeah, 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 yeah. That hurts more than breaking your neck. Yeah. You know, and I learned that really quickly. And I went into hospital and I met people that were real victims, mm. you know, people there from terrorist attacks or hate mm. crimes. And I go into there after having a stunt accident, doing a job that I loved, which was risky. So that made me accept my responsibility and own it very quickly. I had my moments, of course I do, and I still do now where it's testing. And no doubt on my journey with wherever my disability is going to end up, there's going to be more of those moments. But again, it's because of the support that I've got and that giant network of love. Like, And I choose, like, I've learned that it's the language we have about ourselves and the world around us directly perceives your attitude to life. Yeah. And I see everything in a 16 by 9 frame. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Everything. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. You know, some people that are like my missus, she's a, she reads books mm-hmm. and she said sometimes when she looks back on memories, it's like she's reading the subtitles in yeah. the memory where I look back and it's a movie frame. It's a scene, and I, yeah. It's a scene and I romanticise it all. So I remember the light. I remember like the the way that the mood is and the setting is like I set this house up so it's, you know, it's lit like a film set because yeah. that's the way I grew up. And yeah. My first experience, I was 14 yeah. years old. Mm. You know, lost in space, like... Oh, I want to talk about all of this because I want to know, like, what kind of... Like, where you grew up and what kind of kid you were because, again, there's loads of footage of you as a youngster in, in the film and I was thinking of what makes the cool kids at school because I was never the cool kid and it, it yeah. and I, I think it comes down to either you're the best l- 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 looking, something like you've got the best taste in music... yeah. Or you can do a fucking backflip. Yeah. Well, that helped. <laughs> and you were flipping about like, it's like, yeah. you, I was watching it thinking, that would be the person I'd want to be friends with. Yeah. I was like, this kid is just well, flipping about and doing backflips. and It all came to form because I'm a small man. Yeah. I was a very small child. Yeah. And being small, you're easy target for yeah, bullies. Yeah, yeah. And I learned to project to protect. Yeah. So the skill of gymnastics gave me uh, that, oh, wow, that's cool. Yeah. And then the skill of being able to be the class clown and make people laugh mm-hmm. also helped me navigate, which was a, you know, a scary situation. I grew up in Romford. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it's not, the, I mean, 
obviously gentrification is pushed out, but um, at the time it wasn't the, the nicest of no, environments. I spent a lot of time in Romford. We used to go to Hollywoods on the alternative <laughs> yeah, night. Too. That was that was yeah. where we'd go, and it it was we'd get the the bus there, and you know you'd feel it getting a bit rougher. Yeah, as as yeah. as you came from the outskirts into yeah. the centre kind of thing. It's it was it was it was an area that that, that you'd feel a bit nervous, but. It was exciting. Again, yeah. I, I've said it a million times on the podcast, but I've always felt far more comfortable in areas that I feel like I'm going to get kicked in than I feel like I'm going to get kicked out. Yeah, yeah. Whereas yeah, so, so the yeah. rougher areas, it's like there's a bit of an edge, but yeah. Yeah. I love that. I mean, that, that comes yeah. with energy, right? Yeah. Like yeah. there's, you know, there's that sort of tinge of fear that yeah. like, that drives me in some way as well. Yeah, I can imagine throughout your life and career. So, so yeah, you're growing up in, in Romford then. Yeah. Yeah, I guess how was that and what was the route into into film? Into film. So I started at Hayring Gymnastics Club. Yeah. Um there was a, an outreach from British Gymnastics where they go around schools mm-hmm. with a gymnast and they do like a, an aptitude test for physicality. Yeah. And uh I was like 6, 5 or 6 and uh me and my older brother we done the test and then the gymnast said to my mum and dad they were like look we think that there's potential with your your boys. So why don't you start at Hayring Gymnastics Club, which is a small gymnastics centre yeah. um, in Howard Wood. And then I was in that gymnastics club from like 6 to 11, just building on my skill set. And then I went to Australia for a gymnastics tour. Mm-hmm. And then when I come back from Australia, I then moved on to South Essex Gymnastics Club. Uh, that's the home of Max Whitlock and yep. all the top Olympians. So yeah. then like between 11 and 17, I was a competitive gymnast. And I Amazing. went around, like, taught, like, all the British gymnastics competitions. And then I was never, like, a gymnast with finesse. Right. Um, can I swear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was uh, more of a fuck it and chuck it guy. Yeah. You know, I, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. A, I'm brave. So I was yeah. like, you know, I'll try things even if I landed dodgy or yeah. it was risky. It was always me that would try things first. Yeah. So. Um, Do you think getting into it that young helped that? Because, yeah. again, there is a lack of fear. I think we learn fear. Yeah. And and, and yeah. there is a lack of fear at a younger age. So if if at five or six you're getting taught to do flips and all this yeah. other stuff, yeah. then th- there's that instant bit of fear that yeah. you're not going to have. Well, one of my biggest lessons with that was I was at Havering and I was doing a pirouette on parallel bars mm-hmm. where you swing, swing into handstand and then you do a rotation on top of the bars in handstand and come down between the bars again with your legs. Yeah, My legs come down and I smacked my legs on the bar hard. Yeah. Like really hurt, like crying, fear. Uh, my gymnastics coach, Nickins, who lives in Australia now, um, he sat me down and he said, look, if you don't get up and do that again now, you're always going to be afraid of it. Yeah. Like you're always, so it's up to you. Like there's no pressure. But if you want to overcome this fear and this this move, then I suggest you don't go home and sit with it. Mm. I suggest you get on the bar now. Mm. And I got on the bar and I did it. And that sense of overcoming, that sense of being more than just what it had given me, which was the pain. My, yeah. I mean, my, I was ice packs, bruised knees. Yeah. It was pretty bad, like black ankles. Yeah. But I did it. Because there's things that you have to just physically overcome. There's no yeah. point in m- yeah. mentally trying to overcome it. It's, yeah. it's a weird comparison, but for a while I used to go to a, a kind of ninja warrior type training place. Yeah. And the thing that I loved the most was the salmon ladder and and, yeah. and and the guy who would teach in there I would laugh because on all the other ones if I messed it up he said it's so weird to watch you because I'll I'll slip and fall yeah. and then I'll pause I'll look at it for a bit 
I'll figure it out in my head and I'll do it again because yeah. I'll, I'll find the, the, the logic in it. With the salmon ladder, I couldn't do that because it defined logic so much because yeah. it's just yeah. pushing against gravity and yeah. all this. So it was the first one. It's why I loved it the most because it was the one that I couldn't just fall off and then figure it out in my head. It was like, no, you just have to keep f- f- physically trying to do it. That's gymnastics. Until it happens. And that, that was, yeah. That is gymnastics all the yeah. way through. It's such a great sport. The foundation it gives you, not just physically, but mentally. Yeah. Like now I apply those lessons to living with my disability. Yeah. yeah. Like I apply that to everything in my life. Yeah. You know, nothing's good unless it's hard work. Yeah. It's one of the greatest sports and disciplines, and especially being small. Like it works for my body type mm-hmm. and stuff. But I think in the environment of gymnastics, yeah. there was a lot of men that loved me to being who I am. Mm-hmm. You know, coaches that put the time in. My old Beautiful. gym coach, Nick, used to pick me up from outside school, drive me to the gym club, drop us home. He'd never charge my mum for that. Wow. You know, yeah, like yeah, you yeah. just do that for us. Yeah. Um, and he really invested his time into helping me grow. And, you know, as you get older, parental influence wades and you, you look to other, you know, people to help you build and grow. Yeah. And my coaches were that. So at 11, I moved to South Essex. Mm-hmm. And at South Essex, there's a gymnastics coach who was former Olympian. His name's Jeff Hewitt-Davis. Right. Well, Jeff's also a stuntman. Right. So this was my shoe-in. So Jeff got a phone call from Greg Powell and saying that, can you bring five gymnasts up to be the double for Will Robinson on the Lost in Space film? Yeah. So me and my boys, my mates, went up there. We all stood in a line next to the lead actor um, and it was my height and size that really worked for him. Yeah. So I got the job. And then That's I spent amazing. the summer of 14 years old at Shepparton Studios, whole summer, like the six weeks and a little bit before. And I was just messing around and like... A stuntman at f- f- 14. 14 I know, blood, yeah. Right? It was the best summer of my life. Like I always describe film sets like you go through the stage door. It's like a giant airlock into fantasy world. Yeah. You see the backbones of a film set, you know, the scaffold in the wood. And then you go round to the entrance to the set and you see the camera reveal and it's all lit. And the first film set I saw was the inside of a spaceship. Yeah. You know, it was mind blowing. It's magical, isn't it? It's still, as I said, it's still a buzz for, for me. I've now been acting seven or eight years, I guess. Maybe more even, but every time I step on set, it's exactly that. It's yeah. that. What am I? What world am I entering? Yeah. Next. And, and it, it, like I was in a glued into a rubber spacesuit, and Greg was like, "Can you dive out the way of the pyrotechnic?" I was like, "Hell yeah, I can!" Yeah. Like brilliant. And then I spent that summer like riding robots and you know hanging around with movie stars. Matt LeBlanc was the most famous man yeah. in the world at the time. Yeah. And he used to like joke around with me and. He was the first human being to light a fart for me. He was like, hey, Dave, this one's for you. Lifted his legs, put a light next to his backside and a little fart. I was like, that's exactly what I want Joey from Friends to be doing. hundred percent. Yeah. And uh, it what was... What a first. Yeah. It was just mind-blowing. Like, And what really left a, a, like, a mark on me was, as a child performer, you're treated as an equal on film mm-hmm. set. You're treated as a professional. And outside my gym club, that was the only time I'd had that. Yeah. So it was really like, oh, like, this is what I want to do. So I knew what my career path was going to be at 14. Yeah. So I went back, carried on competing in gymnastics, building on my skill set. Um, and then at 17, I was 16 years old. Then Greg rung all the gymnasts in 
for um, Bedazzled with Liz Hurley. Right, yeah. And yeah, he yeah. remembered me from Lost in Space. Yeah. So he put me at the front of the scene to do the stunt that was required. And the stunt was, and it was cut out of the film, but I was working with Harold Ramis. I was like, Igor from yeah, yeah, Ghostbusters. Yeah, from Ghostbusters, get in. Yeah, so the direction was, okay, so you guys have to fancy Liz Hurley. <laughs> and she's going to drop a bald rubber, and you're going to be the guy that goes and gets the bald rubber. And all the other gymnasts are going to pile on top of you behind. Yeah. So you see me at the front of the classroom. And uh, it wasn't hard acting. No. It's fancy Liz Hurley. Yeah. So, I mean, it's brilliant. And uh, all the guys piled on top of us. And then that's when Greg mentioned that you might have Harry Potter. Right. So that's when I went out and got the books. Mm-hmm. So I read the first three books and he took my number. And then he rung me when I was starting my second year of sixth form at mm-hmm. St. Edwards in Romford. Yeah. And then... I left sixth form. My teachers were like, you know, are you sure you want to do this? And I told them how much I was going to get paid a day. And they were like, go and do this. Go and, go and do yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. and then I literally was called in for the first broomstick test. Oh, so yeah. the first broomstick test was in the special effects workshop. And there was a pole arm with weights at one end, uh, like a camera crane. You know, mm. Weights at one end and then on the other end was a broomstick. And yeah. then they attached that to a truck which was like a Dodge Ram with six wheels, which I just remember the truck. It was so cool, like a big American thing. Yeah. Could never fit on English roads, but it was strong enough to like glue to the chassis, the pole arm. And then they attached me with a seat harness under my costume to the pole arm. And then because I'd read the books, I was imagining what Quidditch was like. Mm -hmm. They drove that truck down the runway at Leaveson Studios at 30 to 50 mile an hour. Someone had gifted me a cloak in the wardrobe department. And Chris Columbus was sitting on the back of the flatbed of the truck looking for a, a camera lens. And I was reaching for snitches and dodging quaffles. And because I'd read it, I was in it. And, you know, yeah. I was performing. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, gymnasts take really well to direction. Yeah. Because we, we have it from such a young age. Yeah, of course. So um, we'd done the test and uh, it was a bit cold. Um, and, uh, I, you know, like wind had flushed, like made me eyes sweat a bit. And uh, then Chris Columbus was just whooping and hollering, saying, we got it. This is how we're going to do it. You know, this is how Quidditch is going to be made. Yeah. So obviously we couldn't put the kids on the truck and drive them up and down the runway. Yeah. But as a stuntman, they could use me. Yeah. So that first test was done. And then at the end of the test, Chris come and shook my hand. He went, Dave, man, you were really in it. Like, thanks so much. You should be really proud. And then he looked at Greg and he went, Greg, this is our guy. And that's how I got the job. So, that's so yeah. amazing, and I can't imagine how it must have felt to be walking into that because I've 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 worked at Leavesden a few times, and part of the excitement arriving at Leavesden now is that it's Harry Potter world. It's it's yeah. all of this. It's sort of like, yeah. like like what you were doing is what twenty years on or whatever is the excitement of 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 that big Warner Brothers yeah. place still. So well, it was the bare bones of his studio beforehand. Yeah. They'd done one of the Star Wars there. Right. And I remember driving in and there was the tank from GoldenEye in the behind a lockup. And then there was a TIE fighter, <laughs> um, like, just behind this lockup by the entrance. Yeah. You know, like a real Star Wars piece. And I was like, oh, my God. It's amazing. Um, and then the studio's built over time. They built temporary sets. Oh. But it was definitely the bare bones of the building. And then... It's thanks to the legend that is Roy Button, who mm-hmm. was head of Warner Brothers, mm-hmm. that got the investment from Warners that turned it into the studio that you know yeah. now. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was uh, an adventure playground on the first two films. Of course. And it's 
it's a weird one because no, like with a lot of these interviews with, with with people who've been in huge franchises, is like it must have been so different doing the first one because this and that. But Harry Potter was kind of huge off the bat. Like yeah. it wasn't this kind Massive. of oh, we made this film and then it got big yeah. and it. But it was straight from the go. It was yeah. the biggest thing that was coming out yeah. that year essentially. That's the books though. Yeah, like as the we saw the book release between yeah. one and two. Yeah, you know, and kids were camping outside bookshops. Yeah, you know, and it was just like this amazing piece of literature mm. that had connected across so many people. Yeah, you know, adults and children alike. They love yeah. those stories. Yeah, and uh, just no. So when we the first two was still a bit of a very expensive gamble. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I've got a shout out to the actors that assigned to that because they actually held their ground and they said that they weren't going to sign on unless they got the equivalent of the SAG royalties in the contract. Right. So anyone under an equity contract that worked on those films Mm -hmm. got the SAG equivalent royalties. Right. So I still get the royalty checks to the. To oh, that's day. amazing. And that's like a big umbrella with regards to my finances. That's paid for me to buy wheelchairs for people or take people on holiday or, yeah. you know, just giving me that sort of safety net to say, oh, you know, I see him on the TV and I'm like, oh, it's payday today. Yeah. You know, and that's because Alan Rickman and Maggie Smith and all of those, you know, Robbie Coltrane, they dug their heels in and said, yeah, we're going to do it but we're only going to do it if we get the American if contract. everyone gets paid, yeah. And that is like, and those contracts aren't allowed, like, available anymore. Yeah. No one gets royalties like that anymore. No, not and at all. I think they knew because of the writing, like how big it was going to be beforehand. Yeah. Um, and obviously the popularity of the books, but I'm forever grateful. Like every three months a royalty check comes through and yeah. I'm just like, you know, it's because of those people that really stood their ground and, there was talk about it being shot in America and Daniel was cast, but Daniel was only cast because his parents insisted that it was done here. Yeah. So, um, and the English actors, and then Joe also insisted that it was to be English crew and shot in England. Yeah. So yeah. what that has done for me and for other people just like through me, yeah. it's just like exceptional. So uh, every time I see Alan Rickman, bless him, like I know he's not with us anymore, yeah. but um, I'm very grateful to that man. Yeah, of course. Well, let's talk about how that was because, again, there are these you've got, I mean, you've listed amazing cast members, but there was also a load of young kids who yeah. were brand new to this, yeah. in Daniel, in Emma, in Rupert, and yeah. in you guys. Yeah. So how was that? Because experienced actors, again, the good ones, I think there's no difference between crew and cast. Oh, yeah. But there will be a lot of experienced actors who are very much, we're the talent. It's yeah. a separate thing. Do you know what I mean? None of Whereas them these like young that. kids aren't going to yeah. have that. And yeah. so you're going to be a load of essentially kids at school. Or at play, yeah. you know, on yeah. holiday together as yeah. such. Well, I was 17, Daniel was 11. Yeah. Like, well, between 10 and 11 when we start. Yeah. And I first met all of the cast at Gofland train station. Yeah. I'll never forget because there was a big press thing about trying to get the first photo of the three kids in costume. Yeah, So in the valley of Gofland train station, there was press photographers on the hill and then there were security guards with umbrellas just trying to put the umbrella in front of their camera Amazing. so they couldn't get the photo. Yeah. And Greg and myself, I'd made Greg a tea and we were just watching this panto play out in front of us. <laughs> yeah. Greg started singing the Benny Hill theme tune Brilliant. and it was just so funny. And then Greg said to me, get on the train 
and make sure none of the kids mess around and it's all safe. So that first shot, I'm in the back of the train making sure all the extras, like, and yeah. it's really funny because there was a young extra. She was like 16, 17. I'm 17. I've got a radio that says stunt department on it. Yeah. So I'm feeling all brave and uh, just sparking up a bit of flirting. And then as the train station comes in, all the kids get up out of the carriage, turn right and then step off the train. Um, well, she got up, turned left, pushed me to the toilets and snogged my face off. I was like, I think leaving <laughs> school was the best decision I've ever made. Yeah, just so, a bit, yeah, right? Yeah, so when when you see that, every time I see that shot, I'm like, I'm having a snog in the back there. I don't know, what's up for there? Yeah, funny. That's so good. But, and again, how, how was that for you and the other stunt lads? Because again, you were older, but you're still kids, right? Uh, yeah, 17. Because it's, yeah. it's, the thing that struck me was, You've kind of got the best of both worlds because obviously for Daniel and Emma and Rupert in particular, their lives changed yeah. immeasurably. They're now the kids from Harry Potter, whereas yeah. you guys get to go and live that world, but then not have your lives change in the negative ways, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. You then get to go and be anonymous. But yeah. if you're going back to school or to any kind of socialising, you're Harry Potter stunt double. Oh, so mate, you get I, the cool part. of it. I was in it. Newcastle yeah. with a... With a per diem, yeah. staying in a nice hotel, every night I'd get home from work, be straight out on the town, yeah. trying to chat up women left, right and centre, going, I'm Harry Potter stunt double. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, all of the adventures that you'd think young actors were getting up to, yeah. it was me. So it was my adventures that were played out and, like, this, my stories that were told the next yeah. day. And I'll never forget, I nearly, I got the biggest bollocking of my life. Right. Because um, up on the second potter, we went back to Newcastle again. Yeah. And uh, we were shooting in Alnwick Castle. Mm -hmm. And then on the weekends, I was staying in the hotel. I wouldn't go home. And they had Potter Watch on BBC Radio Newcastle. Right. And it was anyone to ring in with any stories related to Harry Potter. And on Monday, we're all driving to work. And uh, I have had a right result on the weekend and a taxi driver rung in because and this was what was broadcast as we're all driving to work that morning on the radio it was harry potter stunt double wines and dines two girls takes him back to his expensive hotel and doesn't pay for their cab fare home and that is i know right oh i got such a bollocking um and uh and what it was is i put the girls in a cab and was like, said to them, would you like me to pay for the taxi home? Mm. And the taxi driver rung in because they're talking about me in the back of the cab. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I got a, you know, you're representing a kid film, don't you realise? Yeah. You know, yeah. but it also, you know, those stories that like, people still tell to this day. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there was loads of adventures and it was still kind of the Wild West of filmmaking where you can, it wasn't super professional where you can have a laugh and a joke and a practical joke. Yeah. And you know, film sets, right? There's a lot of downtime. Yeah. yeah so yeah. in that downtime, it's nice to, you know, create levity and to, mm -hmm. to create connection across all the crew. Yeah. So I was very much, you know, in, incorporated to a lot of practical jokes yeah. whether that was being strapped to a broomstick and a cake stuck in my face yeah or like my mate Tolga's birthday and I get elevated down from the rafters in a fairy outfit and deliver him a birthday cake <laughs> you know like all of those little things that made up to the memories that we all hold dear yeah. and one of the best practical jokes in the world happened to me on Potter tell me oh it was so good so bad but so good so between HB1 and HB2, yeah. I had two weeks break. That was yeah. it. 
yeah, that because I was doing all the broomstick inserts mm-hmm. at the end of HP1. Right, yeah. So pick up shots with the second unit. So I went away to Magaluf with just me and my mate Danny. Yeah. And I met this Scottish girl and her name was Tina. And I was like, right, well, I arranged her to meet me in Newcastle. Well, Tina being Scottish, I, I said to the hair and makeup girls, I was like, listen, I want to make this girl laugh. So is there any chance I can dye my pubes blue? I know, right? Okay, so so this is the lineup, right? The hair and makeup girls give me a white pot and spatula. And because yeah. I've had my hair dyed before, they were like, you're going to have, and my hair was dyed on Lost in Space. Yeah. You're going to have to bleach it first, and then we'll give you the blue tomorrow. Um, so they sent me home with a white pot and spatula. And at the time, I was renting a flat off of Stuntman Theo Kipri at Chafford 100. Right, yeah. So they said, put it on for 20 minutes and then wash it off and you, it will be blonde. And then tomorrow we give you the blue. So I go home, stick a pizza in the oven, set a timer for 20 minutes, spread all this stuff all over me. Yeah, it gets better, right? And then I, the 20-minute timer goes off. I pull the pizza out and then I jump in the bath. As I jump in the bath, my newly grown pubic hair, because I was a late developer, just all floated to the surface, right? Turns out, I go to, uh, first I ring up Greg. I'm like, Greg, I need the number of hair and makeup girls. He, he was like, what's happened? And he started laughing. And uh, he um, <laughs> he said, listen, I'm not giving you the number of the girls. It's nine o'clock at night. Yeah. Get to work tomorrow and we'll sort it out. So I go to work <laughs> tomorrow, the day after. And first I'm getting my costume on in the trailer. And uh, as I'm getting the costume on, Greg knocks on the door. He went, go on, show me. So I dropped my catch just the way, you know, like dick root. Mm-hmm. So I didn't show everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it turns out I missed a bit. So I had this two Gandalf moustache bits framing the top of my junk and oh, everything had gone. So then I get another knock on the trailer and it like still dressing. And he went, go on, show them. And now I'm having to show all the stunt boys. They fall about laughing. <laughs> and then they're following me to the hair and makeup trailer just in fits of laughter. I get on the hair and makeup trailer. The girls are already crying with laughter. And they was like, they were like, go on, show us. And I just dropped it. So I didn't show my whole junk. Yeah, yeah. And they fall about laughing. 20 minutes go by. And uh, we finally had just like stopped laughing enough to, you know, start putting the makeup on. And is this where I see the call sheet? And on the call sheet, it said one Daniel Radcliffe, 1S, David Baldy Holmes. <laughs> so they'd all, everyone had known about it. Yeah. And they go back to my trailer and then Chris Columbus knocks on the door. He went, hey, Dave, I'm not gay man, but I got to see this. <laughs> so I dropped, dropped to the, the dick rope. Yeah. And he falls about laughing. And I spent the rest of the day just like just lowering my trouser line for everyone to see. Sure. And it was one of those practical jokes that you got to share that. Yeah. You know, yeah, I weren't yeah, embarrassed. Yeah, I yeah. owned it. Yeah. I mean, but I never saw the Scottish girl. I was too embarrassed to see her. <laughs> so it was a bit of a cock block, but it was a funny one. That's so good. And again, that, that camaraderie kind of, it all comes across, like in the documentary, it comes across how close you and Daniel be- became during yeah, this. Because yeah. yeah. again, as as the Potters went on, the kids, the kids, the kids are wanting to kind of do as much as they can as well yeah, and be yeah. kind of taught stuff because you, yeah. you would at that age. So it really is, you know, a, a team. It's you yeah. guys going, well, what do we need David for and what can David teach Daniel to do and Absolutely. what's safe to, yeah. to do this and do that? So, so I was his PE teacher for all of the films. Right. He would come to the stunt department and I'd shut the stunt stores mm-hmm. and we would 
jump on trampolines, do gymnastic elements, yeah. taught him handstand, we do some keep fit. Amazing. And I'd let him be a kid jumping off of porter cabins, you know. Yeah. We'd do sword fighting, boxing, judo, like play some games that I knew from my gymnastics days. Yeah. And uh, it was really important to give him that. Yeah. That environment where he didn't have the pressures of a giant production, yeah. where he could just come and play. Yeah. And uh, we saw him swing a bat and a ball, uh, that scene where Oliver Woods teaching him Quidditch. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we saw him swing that bat and a ball and Greg just took his cigar out of his mouth, looked at me and went, we've got some work to do with him. Just seeing his physicality, just yeah, swinging yeah. that bat. It's just, he's just not that way, it was not that way set up. Yeah. So he would come to me two to three times a week. And we would just hash it out in the like in the stunt stores. All of the things that an insurance company would have a heart attack about. Yeah. That's what we were doing. Well, the transformation is evident now as well, from the little mm. kids in the first yeah. ones to either him at the end or just him now. He's like oh, he's mate, he's ripped, shape. isn't he? Yeah, yeah. He's a beast. I and, mean, people are pitching him for Wolverine. Yeah. And yeah. I always say if he gets a job, I'm going for Professor Xavier. <laughs> I've lost my hair and I'm in a wheelchair, so, you know, I, I, I put myself up for the job. I mean, you're an official stunty again now, so, yeah. so you can at least stunt double. Pro- it would be nice, Xavier. right? Imagine yeah. that, that'd be amazing. Yeah, brilliant. Do. And I'm also, I'm trying to, because um, they're remaking them, aren't they, the yeah, process? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm trying to push for a wizard in a wheelchair for representation. That, that'd be amazing. Yeah, it'd yeah. Be really, I can already see how Little Broomsticks, where the wheels would be, would mm. help people go around. So... I'm asking for it to be in the game and hopefully in the TV series. Yeah. I mean, I've already said I'll, I'll happily go in as a teacher. Yeah. And uh, so I wrote good. to Joe about it. Yeah. Because um, I'm very fortunate I get to have correspondence with Joe Rowling now yeah. and again. And I said, like, in, in the film series, can we have a wizard in a wheelchair? And her mum had MS. Mm. So she's one of the biggest like contributors to MS charities like, yeah. in the world. And um, she said she was, she kind of, thought about this in the when she was writing the books because she was trying to think well will magic fix anything yeah you know and of course harry has his bones repaired yeah, yeah and all that lot really and uh so it's something she that she had the moral quandary under but she yeah. just thought do you know what just because i'm gonna need to be able to use magic with you know with that flex you know to be able to fix things throughout the, the films yeah um that she avoided it but it's funny because when she said magic can fix all things, yeah. I was always like, well, then maybe like what Voldemort has to do, drink unicorn blood yeah. and stuff like that. Maybe there will be, you might be able to fix it, but it would have a detrimental effect to you as a person and you yeah. as a wizard. Like, so hopefully, you know, the message is out there that we can get a wizard in a wheelchair and uh, it would be lovely. And again, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think since that time, there's been a change in the perception on these things, like yeah, because because representation's a big thing, and it's getting past the idea that people that have different abilities are broken and need to be fixed. Yeah. Again, I know I'm really yeah. lucky that with my stammer, I, I went to a speech therapist briefly, and my parents were like, "No, we don't like it because they." They talk as if he's broken and needs fixing. It's like, he's not broken, he doesn't need fixing. So there would be interesting elements now of looking at that and going, well, there could 100% be a teacher or whomever who is in a wheelchair. Yeah. And, you know, do you not think not needed to go through all of this to fix it as such. Do you not think that your stammer makes you who you are? Yeah, exactly. I will always say breaking my neck made a man of me. Yeah, Yeah. I'll always say that. Yeah. You know, I was a boy before and then all of a sudden I was faced with this life-changing thing. Yeah. And it, it not just me, but, you know, all of my friends. 
my family members, it, or we all had to grow. We was forced to grow yeah. to really face adversity together collectively. Yeah. You know? So, um, yeah, I'll always say that adversity makes you who you are. So, I completely agree. I, I, had, I was doing an interview once for a book about stutters and, and stammers. And we talked about all this. I'd said how I think I've broadened my vocabulary because I'd be learning words so I can yeah. replace other words because yeah. I know I'm going to stammer on and stuff like that. And then the guy was going for his big dramatic end and he was like, so if you could turn it off, would you? Or would yeah, you keep yeah. it? And I was like, well, no, now I would, yeah. I've, 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 I've learned everything I need from it. I'd happily turn it off now. Yeah. And I think that's a similar thing. It's like you, 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 you've, it's made me the person who I am. But yeah. if I had the choice to just go... Yeah. bang then yeah i would at this point but i wouldn't have got rid of it from a, from a kid because that's kid. who i am now but yeah. yeah but look at ed sheeran yeah you know he used yeah. hip-hop to yeah. help him get over and i'm yeah. guessing you did the yeah. same yeah exactly like yeah, to yeah. be able to use flow for music yeah that state of mind that you're able to express yourself freely because of beat breaks yeah that yeah part the rhythm, of the, the rhythm, rhythm. yeah it. yeah it changes yeah. it yeah. and I, i'm learning rhythm now through telling stories yeah so I recently done a, a comedy podcast with Ross and John. Yeah. It was basically an hour of bonus stories. Yeah. Um, but there, it was really funny because with this disability, there's so many times it, you're dehumanized. Mm -hmm. But I've learned that to use humor to cover the horror. Mm -hmm. You know, so in a hospital, we was taking bets on how much we were weeing or, you know, like we, when you're in a bay on a hospital ward, yeah. everyone goes to the toilet at the same time. Yeah. You know, there's four young men all getting assisted going to the toilet. Yeah. Like that's hard. Well, let's talk about how astounding, because again, I feel we don't, it seems odd to have this podcast and not talk about the accident, but I don't feel yeah. that moment needs covering really. Well, there was, I, I, I never, yeah. it was, you know, it's just one of those it's things. It's everything else either side of it. And yeah. You spent a load of time in Stanmore. Stanmore yeah. I've, I've I've been to Stanmore. I have an ex who's now a great friend who had a load of different health issues over the years and has been in and out of Stanmore at different times. And it would always astound me, the atmosphere on those wards, the vibe, the way the staff, again, doing such important work. But I'd never go there and it'd feel bleak. No, I'd yeah. go, oh, The first time I went, I was like yeah. expecting, oh, this is going to yeah. be... So sad, and I'd get there, and people are taking the piss. At, people I've never met are taking the piss out of me, yeah, yeah. and and just everyone's interacting. And that, I mean, that environment, that place, that hospital mm. is the best example of the NHS. Yeah, even though the building is old Nissan huts from the nineteen sixties, yeah. still is to this day. The staff, the way they contribute, and yeah. the NHS is the parent that we've all got that we mm. all take for granted. They're there when we're born, and they're there when you die. You know, and the more we can do as citizens to be thankful and grateful for that, the more we can lobby our governments. Yeah. Um, because it's, you know, the National Health Service is the best example of what a functioning democracy could be. Yeah. You know, if I yeah. was in America right now, I'd be dead and I'd be broke because I couldn't afford the health care. And I would have probably been caught up in the Oxycontin, uh, you know, that, mm -hmm. that whole loop of what yeah. happened. So I'm really grateful to that institution and what it means to us as British citizens. And we all need to really cherish that. And uh, like that hospital, they are miracle workers. Yeah. Every single person in every department makes you feel seen, makes you feel important, and are there to help you grow and adapt to the new life that you are facing, you know, and the challenges and the hardships you're facing. Yeah. Some people go out there and they're fully fixed. Yeah. Some people go out there and their life's changed forever. But they teach you how to learn to live the new life yeah. with being disabled. 
So, um, yeah, I love it. And, and that, that lesson's been an important one for you, right? Because, again, it's inaccurate to think you had an accident and then that's it. Like, it's been continual change and development yeah, yeah. on what your condition is, on yeah. if you can walk, if you're in a wheelchair, if you've got use of your arms, if you've not, all, yeah. all these d- different things. That's been a constant d- 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 development. So kind of tell me a little bit about that. Because, again, you if you don't know your story, you might get the impression of, at this point in filming, you got an injury yeah. and you went from this to this. Oh, yeah, no, my neurological condition is been... changing. Yeah. So I'm, was very, I still am a good healer. Mm. So a lot of white blood cells went to the bruising point in my spinal cord. Mm-hmm. So after they'd done the fixation surgery, the first one, mm-hmm. just as I was about to leave hospital after doing loads of rehab, I developed an in-spinal cord syrinx, which sort of spread and the pressure grew. Mm-hmm. And it grew up to the, the base of my head to C1, which is the, the highest point in the spinal cord. And the surgeon said to me, we've got to put you in surgery now or it's going to kill you. So wow. I was forced into another surgery again. They opened up the back of my neck, put more structural work in it, opened the spinal cord and put a shunt in, which drained the pressure in that syrinx. Now, as you get older, your spinal cord thins out. So as I've got older, the damage that the syrinx caused Mm-hmm. It's started to affect the neurological condition on my right side. Right. So I've lost more sensation and I've lost more function. So I left that hospital in a manual wheelchair. And then in 2015, I really started to notice the tricep on my right arm go. Um, and then they said, look, let's not do any surgery. Like I went in front of the British Board of Neuroscientists, told them my condition and my sensation. Mm-hmm. Um, and they all collectively said, look, it's too risky to go for something now. In 2019, it got to the point where I was barely pushing a manual wheelchair anymore. And I was like, if I don't try and go for a surgery to see if I can stop the deterioration, mm-hmm. then I'm going to forever spend the rest of my life thinking you should have gone for it. Yeah. So I went for another bout of surgeries that opened up my spinal cord. And then that ended up with four more surgeries because I was leaking CSF fluid, oh, wow. which is the fluid around your spinal cord and your brain. Yeah. Uh, if that gets infected when it's leaking, that's meningitis, you're dead. Right. So that had to heal up. So I found myself in uh, Queen Square Hospital, which backs onto Great Ormond Street. Yeah. Christmas Day with a drain in the top of my head releasing the pressure so the internal scar could heal up. And um, that was the trenches. That was the hardest. Yeah. Um, but... And this is the power of films for me. Okay, my mum and dad brought me up a Christmas meal on Christmas Day. And I hadn't eaten for like nearly a month, not a whole meal, because I just couldn't, like the headaches and light sensitivity and all that lot. And I was just, the, the internal scar was starting to heal up. And it was hard. My parents seeing me in, on hospital on Christmas Day. And we sat together in my little hospital room at Queen Square. And Oliver Twist was on the on the TV. Yeah. And that film, my mum was humming along and I was just marvelling at how great that film is. Everyone brings their A game. Oliver Reed, the sets, the, you know, the false perspective of the sets and how they were built. I knew what's gone into that now because of my lifestyle. And that film gave us the gift of just being able to take us out of the hardships that I was going through and just give us the story. And I've used film and TV for that for my whole life. You know, when I woke up on the spinal ward after my surgery, I watched a film. Yeah. When I woke up after those surgeries first time around in Stanmore in 2019, I had to look at a ceiling for like a week 
So I got a projector, projected my favourite film on the ceiling, which is the like extended edition of Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And um, that got me through. Yeah. You know, like, and that's the power of film and storytelling. Yeah. Right now, there are children in conflict zones all around the world. They're watching Harry Potter on phones, you know, and it's getting them through. And yeah. I know that my 10, 15 seconds is a contribution to that, to that safe space for those kids and for those adults that are watching that. And that's a beautiful thing. It really is a beautiful thing. I think it's a more relatable thing now than it ever has been because of the pandemic. And I think a lot of people know that films and TV shows yeah. is what kept people saying. I think it's no coincidence that the writer's strike and the actor's strike have happened, you know, a few years after that, of people yeah. going, no, we need our rights, so we need to be protected and paid Absolutely. correctly and yeah. all this kind of thing. And again, people often mistake that as the big people at the top wanting more money. No, it's the it's rights for everyone on the crew, everyone well, across the yeah. board. It's what the it's what Alan Rickman and those actors did for you guys on Potter and going, Absolutely. we need better rights and protection for everyone. Yeah. yeah. Um, I met Pedro Pascal recently yeah. and he just was on Gladiator and then just was like, right, no, I'm like, we're on the strike. Yeah. And I met him and I said, don't cross that picket line. No. You know, yeah, and Daniel yeah, yeah. didn't cross the picket line. Yeah. And the strike broke two days before my New York press tour for this documentary. So yeah. Daniel was able to join me on the press stuff. Amazing. On the documentary. So me, Dan Hartley, my director, yeah. and uh, Daniel were, were all part. I was a, a Dan sandwich, I the meeting of Dan sandwich. And we was just <laughs> talking to all the top publications. Yeah, And it's funny, a couple of nights beforehand, I was actually at the, you know, like the networking do yeah. for New York Documentary Festival. Yeah. And I sat in the room and it was a busy room. And when you're in a wheelchair, you're just looking at asses. So I went and sat to the side. And then the actual documentary festival host come up to us and I called him out. I was like, there's 2,000 people here. Why am I the only one with a disability in this room? Mm. Why, why is my story one of the only ones we're talking about people from my perspective? Yeah. You know, I was looking around and I was like, all of the people in this room would kill to have the publications and the press exposure that I'm about to get tomorrow. I was talking to the New York Times. I was talking to Washington Post. I was talking to... CNN or like the big ones, yeah, yeah, you know, and like everybody in there was doing their networking and drinking their free drinks. Yeah. And I just said, I was like, you know, right, right now, an algorithm can't write my story. Yeah. You know, a computer can't create my documentary because yeah. it's a human made story about human made by humans. And I was like, this strike, what that means is to, to you know, to safeguard that. You can't have extras sign a contract that says we can use you for one day's work. Then after that, we've got the rights to your image for a hundred years in mm -hmm. a computer. That is not right. And it's not no. fair. And it's casino. No. I'm going to swear badly now, yeah. but it's casino capitalism called, you know, caused by cunt. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm not at, like, it's just not good enough. No, completely agree. And as a stunt department, we don't get a BAFTA. We don't get an Oscar, you know, like the biggest award ceremonies out there don't recognise us as the artists that we are. Mm -hmm. Now, you've only got to look at Picasso painting Guernica or Banksy spraying the West Bank to know that in society, we reward the artists that take the most risks. Yeah. So why aren't we rewarding stunt departments? Yeah. So there's, I'm part of the campaign, big push to get BAFTAs to, to incorporate us. Now, there used to be this story that, oh, we don't want to, you know, call stunt departments to push the boundaries of action and more accidents to happen. And they used to hide behind that. 
But you've only got to see Tom Cruise jumping off the dam this year mm-hmm. to know that big stunts performed by people put people like put audiences on seats. And yes, Tom does his own gags, but there is a giant department that you know. And Wade Eastwood, friend of mine, he's the stunt coordinator. Yeah, and Tom would never be able to do it without Wade and the team behind him. Yeah, exactly. So hopefully, going forwards, people will see that you know. My story shows the sacrifices made by stunt people for the sake of storytelling. Yeah. So um, I know that in sharing my story, there was lots of people I represent. You know, my old Potter family, the stunt community, disabled people and how they're seen in front of camera. You know, I was never going to be a victim. I recently had a radio interview where it was an American woman. She'd obviously spent her life in therapy, you know, and she tried to give me an open therapy session. And beforehand, yeah. I said, listen, I don't want to talk about the accident. Yeah. You know, I don't want to, you know, and I, you know, and it was like a chess game. She'd poke and prod to try and get an emotional reaction out of me and I'd bat it back. And by the end of it, it was so funny because I checkmated it. Yeah. Because um, she actually said like, so now you're on the wire. You're just about to break your neck. If you can say something to yourself, what would you say? I was like, at the start of the interview, I'd already said I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. And now you're trying to put me there. Yeah. So I just went, nothing. And then right at the end, like, she said, have you got, what's the best advice for life you've been given? I went, bullshit baffles brains. Thanks for the interview. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, check, mate. Beautiful, beautiful. I I love it. And again, you're touching upon representation there. And one of the things I've been, I was saying before we got started, I've spent this whole year really trying to get a film off the ground as a writer, director and actor in it. But it has me in it stammering which I've not done in any roles before and one of the things I'm talking about a lot in the kind of the pitch document and that and in the meetings is that representation isn't only for those you're representing it's for those who don't get exposed to what you're representing and with stammers like purely because I've got the stats in my head now it's one to two percent of the UK of, of adults stammer and it's great to give them representation, but yeah. also it's great for the 98 to 99% who don't see stammers regularly, yeah. who don't yeah. know how to act when someone stammers, who try and finish it or panic or feel awkward. Yeah, and yeah. as we've seen, I'm not uncomfortable. You're not uncomfortable no, not by me. No. But again, it's that it's because we're, we're, we're in those worlds where we can be, be comfortable with that. So representation is so that I always remember Riz Ahmed I came up with and I always remember him doing a Star Wars film and realising that kids were going to be able to get a brown action figure on Christmas Day. Yeah. But, and how much that meant. So it is about the representation of those you're representing, but it's also about everyone else. Like, yeah. we've, I remember going to see a Black Panther up the road in Basildon and seeing the music come on at the end and a load of white kids getting up and dancing yeah. and, and love it. And I grew up in an area that, still has a way to go with racism, with yeah. homophobia, with all yeah. these, with with all sorts of disability abuse and things like that. And it's exposing to all these kids yeah. stuff that they wouldn't normally see and making mm. it cool and making it cr- yeah. credible that's important as well. That's why I refuse to pay, and I still do. I'm not the victim in yeah. this. Yeah. Like, I am a man and yeah. it made me a man. Yeah. And... Like when we're we're talking about like getting a wizard in a wheelchair or pushing for more 
working class people to be exposed to the creative arts. Yeah. You know, only 14% of people from working class background uh, have the opportunity to work in the, in the industry, in the creative industry. Yeah. It needs to change. You know, I'm from a working class background. I grew up in Romford. My mum had to stack shelves to pay for my gymnastics tuition at South Essex. Yeah. You know, of a night time. She would then drive us up to the gym club from Romford to Basildon, half an hour, six days a week, all the time. She had to put the work in. My parents, like, put themselves in debt to pay for my gymnastics tuition. Now, gymnastics is still expensive now. Yeah. You know, that's outside the reach of anyone from a lower income background, let alone a middle class family. Mm-hmm. Like some people still, you know, have to push for that. So my dream is to, you know, show to people that you can be creative, like just like you can express yourself in art in any way. Uh, we all have these iPhones now or, yeah. you know, a smartphone that can shoot, edit and make short films. Yeah. And the boundaries you set in life is you. Yeah. You know, like I can't paint, I can't write, I can't hold a pen. But I'm 68,000 words into a book that I've written. Yeah. You know, I've created a piece of art that's upstairs where I just splattered paint all over a piece with my mate and we done a Jackson Pollock-like piece of art. Yeah. And I was able to, like, just express myself through art. Yeah. And I think that's the best of what us humans can do. Yeah. You know, like, art is, like, the saviour. For me, like, I find I, it's my safe space. So it's my space where I express myself. Yeah. It should be funded twice as much as it is in the school system. Yeah, I agree. You know, and my dream is to open a small studio complex where it's a stunt studio where nine to five, it's used as a stunt training area for the studios. So like the films can train their actors there. And then 5 p.m., I want the studios out and then I want a stunt coordinator in residence. I'd like to bring performing arts centres from all around the country and over a week workshop, we shoot an action sequence. Amazing. And some of those kids might be physically able to perform the action, and some of them might not be. But you've got a camera department, a lighting department, you've got an editing department mm. that they could all get exposed to if the environment's right. That just takes investment. Yeah. That takes investment from the big... But it's a tried and tested format because they've done it in LA. Yeah. With 8711. Right. And 8711 was started by Chad Stelinski and Dave Leach. Mm-hmm. Chad was Brad Pitt's stunt double and Keanu Reeves' stunt double. They got the, the script in front of Keanu for John Wick mm-hmm. while, when he was at the training facility. Keanu signed to John Wick. They raised the capital. And now they've got one of the biggest movie franchises yeah. in action history. Yeah. So it's a tried and tested formula. So yeah. I just want that here yeah. in the UK. I want that in a space. So I'm hoping... That the more I shout about it, the more people realise that yeah, it's a it's a good business model. I was going to say it's that's exactly it. That's the bit I was going to flag because again, growing up in the places that we grew up, you're never going to again. It wasn't until you told your teacher what you were getting paid that they went, "Yeah, go ahead and yeah, do that." Because the arts is never seen as a realistic career. You've got to go yeah. and work here or work there or work yeah. in a factory or work in a shop or work in the city. But the arts now have become a huge industry that brings loads of money into this country, into our economy. So they should be focused on as much as any of these other things because the the film industry alone pays so, again, when we talked about the strikes, pays the wages of so many techies and stunties and all these other people, so many different industries. It's like these should be things that... are focused on and trained for as much as anything else because it is now a realistic thing and it's 
partly because of you guys and Potter, because that was one of the first big studio things to yeah. develop in the UK. And now there's loads and more yeah. being built constantly, particularly yeah. in Wales as well. Yeah. There's so many big studios where this is a viable career yeah. and it's a beautiful career. Yeah. The one thing I will say about a current government, mm-hmm. there's going to be both sides to this. Yeah. They do give a really good discount for film and TV productions in the UK yep. for the profit margin. Yeah. And they've reconfirmed that to be extended for a long thing. That is good government policy. Yeah. I'm saying this the same week that the Tories have just announced that there's not going to be a disability minister for disabilities. Mm-hmm. You know, like I live in a street where there must be 100 million quids worth of houses on this road. Mm-hmm. I can't navigate the path outside my house yeah. because the investment's not there. For me, it's too dangerous with the tree roots and it's too sketchy. Yeah. So I can't leave my house independently. So yeah. we've got a long way to go yeah. on to include dis- disabled people. 15% of the population live with a disability or ailment. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of money in the blue pound. Yeah. You know, but corporations realised there was a lot of money in the pink pound a few years ago. Yeah. But it's a damn sight cheaper to stick a rainbow flag on your logo and say you're inclusive than it is to employ disabled people and adapt your buildings. Yeah. So... And now they just get rid of the disability minister. Yeah. I mean, you have to excuse me, but fuck off. Yeah. You know, like, do one. Yeah. You know what I mean? Everyone's going to be touched by disability in their life. Yeah. You might be 90 years old in a chair and want to go and see the sea for the last time. And you need to be able to park. You need to have wheelchair accessible transport. You need to have the structure to be able to do that. Yet, right now, disabled people are not seen as, you know bringing something to, to the table, the more taking something to the table. Yeah. Well, I bring a lot to the table. I created a documentary. I've built adapted buildings. I've built this house. I've navigated the legal industry. And there's a saying that I like that is handy capable, not handicapped. Yeah. I'm handy capable. Like, I do a well, lot. It's one of the things that came across in the documentary was I finished the documentary and there are some really emotional moments, obviously, but yeah, I course. didn't come out of the documentary kind of thinking, oh, that's so sad. I came out thinking, this is the coolest cunt. Because, oh, <laughs> again, it was like so much good stuff. But, I mean, to kind of, and again, that's just to kind of, to, uh, to highlight that it's not this death sentence, it's not this prison no, sentence, these things. But I want to talk about the house that we're, we're sitting in because you talked about imagination, you talked about t- technology, and it's all part of that. It sounds odd yeah. to say I'm excited to talk about a house, but... You dreamt this up from your hospital bed, yeah, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it was the time when Grand Designs was everyone's yeah. TV pool every yeah, week, right? Yeah, yeah. And I thought, you know, there might be an opportunity, if it all goes all right, navigating the legal process that I had to, mm-hmm. that I might be able to build a house. Mm-hmm. So in my head, I sat there and I was like, what do I want to do? I want to be able to open my front door. I want to be able to go inside to outside freely without asking for care. I want to be able to turn on the TV, change the channel, turn on the light. So I built this house 10 years ago mm. with all the assistive technology in it. I can open every door, turn on every light. And again, that's before that was more the yeah. norm as well. You yeah, now walk time. in a lot of houses and there's a lot of smart houses and stuff. Yeah. But yeah. you kind of yeah, so came I was up with really that in your head kind of thing. You pioneering that. that, working yeah. with a team of specialists. Yeah. And uh, like this house, it, it serves a purpose not just for me. Mm. I originally built this house to have a family in. Yeah. That's not happened for me. And as my disabilities got worse, I've decided that it's probably not the right course of action. Sure. You know, I don't want to bring a child into this world and like them see me like in their younger years get worse. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, 
I lend this house to people when I go on holiday. Yeah. And my mate, and there are always people in a chair. My mate conceived his child in this house. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah. you know, a couple that thought they'd have to go through IVF. Yeah. Managed to have a child naturally in this building. Yeah. You know, like I've had children's birthday parties. I mean, it's a sexy house, mate. I oh, thank you. It's yeah. a very, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It uh, feels like a holiday as such. Yeah. I mean, you know that story, if you build it, they will come. Yeah. <laughs> well, they didn't come. Yeah. Everyone else got laid in here apart from me. But Unbelievable. It's but, all right. But again, I mean, you've touched upon other people using it and you've got like, you built a pool for your kind of, rehabilitation yeah, and things like that yeah aquatherapy and not only you use that other no, people all, yes. disabled people from the area yeah. come and use yeah. that pool and yeah. and your mate does all sorts all of my friend's in. children had their first room in this room pool. yeah you know lovely yeah. like i take yeah. the photos there and they have that memory i put on music down there and i use it do you know the best thing i do down there oh. is i use it because i do breath holds mm-hmm. so i sit at the bottom of the pool on a scuba bottle mm-hmm. and i will do like three blocks of breath holds. And that's because, like, as my injury gets worse, there's a chance I might lose independent breathing speed and swallow. Mm-hmm. So the way to fight against that for me is to push. Mm-hmm. So I do my swimming and my physio moves me around. And then I get in the scuba bottle and I sit at the bottom. And that allows me to sit upright without the weight of my head on my shoulders. Right. And so I can get into a real state of flow and meditation. Yeah. And I hold my breath. And... Just literally on the weekend, um, my first one, my record, I'll tell you my record at the end, but my first one was 3 minutes 30, my second one was 3 minutes 50, my third one was 4 minutes 10, and my record's 4.25. And I've got a stunt woman that was one of the dive specialists on Avatar 2. She's coming over in February to see her family, and she said she's going to do a two-day workshop with me, and five minutes is my Mount Everest. Amazing. I'm going to get five minutes. I I love that. Yeah, I love that continuing to to push for things as Always, well. It's yeah. that, and again, that was the mentality I saw in the little kid in in the documentary. That it was like straight away, kind of, I don't want to be a kid stunt man. I want to be a stunt man. Yeah, I happen to be younger, yeah. but I want to be a stunty. I want to yeah. be part of this. And that's yeah. again, it was so weird to see. And obviously, there was an age difference with yourself and Daniel and Emma and all this this lot, but. Not that much. You were the grown-up in that situation, yeah. yeah. despite only being a few a few school years ahead kind yeah. of thing. So, yeah. yeah. And I, I, like, I was doing all the adventures that you'd think they'd get up to. Yeah. So yeah. they was like vicariously living through my Newcastle stories. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, all of my weekend adventures that I'd tell Dan about. And yeah. I never treated any of them like children. Mm-hmm. I always treated them like, you know, like I arranged for Emma to get dance tuition at the studio. So yeah. local dancers that I grew up with, like was break dancing with around this yeah. area, would come in and teach Emma dancing. And now when you see Emma on screen, she's, you know, she can take it all routines. You yeah. see her in Beauty and the Beast. I was just blown away by her skills. Again, I am going to have to wrap things up at some point, but I feel like we could talk for hours. There's I'm a sure lot we'll more, do another yeah. episode as well yeah, at some point. Always. But um, I want to talk to you about the pride you have for your friends, for for people like Daniel and Emma, but also was it Mark who kind of t- yeah. t- had to take over from you in in yeah. in that period? He saw me break my neck and then put the costume on and done the stunt afterwards. Yeah, Imagine it's that. amazing. But again, privately, you've spoken with such warmth and pride about about his career. And mm. again, I think it would be easy for many people 
to have something ripped away from them and become bitter. I don't sense any of that from you. And I don't know if there was a period of that, but I don't sense any of that from you. So talk to me a little bit about the pride you have for Daniel, for Mark, for all of these people who have gone on and continue. Because again, particularly if your kid's in film or in any industry, it's easy for it to be, you're there and you're gone. I was was talking yesterday about Malcolm in the Middle and how I think all three of the kids from that have left acting and yeah. all doing amazing things. Yeah. But that was the biggest show at the time. Yeah. And it's it hadn't really occurred to me that none of them yeah. are what they in now. I oh, think you don't see it. Testament to the crew mm-hmm. and the family unit we had on Potter. Yeah. Continuity around that, like all working together over the franchise. And everyone at home got to watch them kids grow up in front of camera. Yeah. I got to watch them grow as adults. Yeah. And like I still, to this day, when I see Daniel... Like, and seeing how he is as a man, like yeah. now he's a father, it just brings me so much joy. Yeah. So, um, and all of them, like Tom Felton right now is in Kazakhstan. Yeah. He's got security protection because of obviously the conflict with Russia mm-hmm. and like how dangerous that is. Um, and he's on his own in Kazakhstan. So every day I'm sending him new music, a voice note, making sure that he's looking after himself, yeah. making sure he's holding himself accountable. Making sure he's not, you know, getting drunk too much or, you know, feeling too lonely to reach out to people. Yeah. Because they're like, they were there for me. Yeah. You know, when I was in St. Thomas's Hospital, uh, sorry, Queen Square, Daniel come and sat with me two days before Christmas. Oh. I got with him and his missus, Erin, they, like, I got a drain in my head. Like, I'm having to go through all sorts of things and they sat with me and they gave me their time. Tom Felton went to Great Ormond Street and then after Great Ormond Street, he drops off loads of presents for the kids. He come across and sat with me for an hour, you yeah. know, and it was just those moments that reminded me that they love me like I love them. Mm. You know, we all love each other a lot, and I'm just proud of all of them. I just had them, a few of them at the Potter prim, uh, my documentary premiere in London, yeah. and it was so nice to catch up and see them all, like how they've grown as adults, and I can see them performances that they give on screen to see how they've grown as performers. It's just yeah. nothing but pride. And then you look at Mark. Mark not only stepped up and done the stunt and was double for Harry for the end last one or the last two, but he's then like incorporated new techniques to make wire work safe, safer. Mm. And then he's gone on to be stunt coordinator. And if you just see his credit list, did you watch Andor? Yeah, yeah. It's Mark. Yeah. And Mark shoots all the action sequences beforehand, hands those previews to Tony Gilroy. And Tony Gilroy hands it to the director and says, shoot exactly what Mark's done. And they get in like a house on fire. Amazing. So, and Mark's just seeing him, like he's a family, like he's got four kids. You know, he lives in the the other side of the park to me. Right. And like just be, having him in my life and seeing his life grow and his career grow, it's, it's just nothing but pride. Yeah. Tolga as well, like the way they are as men, like. Yeah. And they know that I'll hold them accountable. Yeah. And I know that they'll hold me accountable. So, yeah, it's a... Uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm blessed, cursed and blessed. Yeah. But I focus on the blessing. Yeah. You know, like you can look two ways in life. You're either a victim or a survivor. Yeah. I'm a survivor. I love it. Well, I'm going to end, as I always kind of do, by asking what's ahead. But I guess that's a bigger question here because it's what's ahead. Again, you talk in the documentary about an awareness of yeah. your, of what your, how your abilities are changing, how things are going to continue. Continue to change, but you seem to face that head on. So, what's ahead 
in both sides? What do you want to be doing? What do oh, you are you preparing for? Dear, I've got so many things I want to do. Yeah. Yeah, so we've got another series of Cunning Stunts, the podcast. Yeah. I said that the right way around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so another series coming where I highlight the, the stories that my friends, you know, of their stunt stories and their careers. Yeah. Talking to people all across the stunt register. Yeah. And the, the worldwide stunt industry. So that's coming, a new series of that. Um, obviously, Wizard in a Wheelchair in the game and hopefully in the new TV series. Yeah. I'm trying to encourage HBO to build the new sets uh, of a friend of mine's land, if they build the sets on the land, he was Ron's stunt double. Right. If they build the sets on the land, then fingers crossed, we might have a business deal where the sets get converted into a hotel complex. Wow. Which feeds into the studio tour. And that's because I send kids that are in Stanmore to the studio tour. Like that's their first trip out. They go out in the bus that I funded with this fundraising yeah. and I get them tickets and like even their first thing that they do is they go and see the Harry Potter studio tour. Yeah. Now it annoys the living heck out of me that all the disabled rooms in all the hotels around that area are terrible, mm. like shocking. Mm. So why don't I build one? Yeah. Why don't we build the sets there? convert the sets into, I mean, it's going to take Amazing. a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's yeah, one business idea that I want to do. Yeah. I'm just designing a catheter device. So I'll be able to use voice control to open and close a catheter, mm-hmm. which will give people like me independence and control in their bladder so they don't have to ask a carer to come and do it. That's amazing. Because, yeah. again, we didn't touch upon in the house, but you were able to adapt everything to voice yeah. control as well. Yeah. When you stop being able to use... Yeah. A manual wheelchair. When I lost like one limb, I gained another through voice control. Yeah, yeah. Just in this environment that I live in. Yeah. The most disabling thing about being a wheelchair user is the environment you're interacting with. Yeah. So yeah. I, this house does not look disabled. No. You know, we're sitting in this lovely room and that's where I watched Oppenheimer the other well, day. I was saying to you, it's, uh, it's, you've, you've, you've designed it and built it functionally first, but yeah. equally... If I lived in this house, I'd be delighted. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because it's again, everything you've done is just what is what become has what has since become the kind of the trend anyway of voice yeah. control of everything automated. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, and like, I'm the naught point naught naught percent of disabled people that can do this. Of course, yeah. You know, like we are disproportionately below the poverty line. Mm-hmm. Doesn't help that we don't have a disability minister yeah. to fight our battles. Yeah. Um, but so for me to show that it can be done. I'm a person, it's not that I can't, it's how, Mm. you know, how can I? And through the support network that I've got and the beauty of foresight, the fact that I grew up rehearsing everything in my brain that helped me design and build this place. And again, it's your your mindset as well, because it's your mindset that's not just going, how do I make this better for me? It's how do I make, how could this be something that could help everyone? Like, as you say, about a voice controlled catheter and, and and things like that. And again, you saw that in the documentary with you kind of trying to bring your your mates through or trying to train other people up. It's, yeah. You don't ever seem to have been the one to go, oh, look, cool, I've got this opportunity. I'm going to make the most of it. You're like, I'm going to make the most of it for everyone. For everyone. Let's, let's see who else can have this if opportunity. If the door is open for you, it's your bloody well duty to yeah. stick your foot in the door and yeah. keep it open for someone else. Yeah. You know, like Greg Powell, my stunt coordinator, has championed so many people from working class backgrounds mm. to become a stunt performer because yeah. that was his growing up. You know, his dad was a celebrity stuntman, but his dad also, you know, worked at Spitfields Markets, yeah. you know, a wholesome cart back in the day. Yeah. 
Um, there's so much history around Greg. You should get yeah. him on. Yeah. But other ideas. I've mm-hmm. got the big pitch. Are you ready for this? Let's have it. I might need you for this as well. I'm up for it. All right. So have you ever heard about the Halifax explosion? No, I don't think so. Oh, God, Pip, it's the best Wikipedia page you'll ever read. I'm currently just doing some character development with it Mm -hmm. right now. So in 1917, two boats collided in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Mm -hmm. Um, It was in a foggy day, and the protocol is you switch the engines off when you have a collision. One of the boats was carrying the largest ammunition shipment to ever go back from North America to restock World War I in, in Europe. Well... As they turned the engines back on, one of the cans of butane had fallen over and the vapours caught from the engines lighting up. So a fire started on one of the ships, the ammunition ship. The bloke just drifted the ammunition ship to the shore and then basically one of the guys dived off the boat, alerted the train station and the town that is going to blow. The largest explosion, man-made explosion ever happened Wow. Yeah, and it caused the riverbed to blow out, a tsunami which wiped out a Native American tribe on the opposite riverbank. Wow. 2,500 people were killed, yeah, and thousands of others were caught in the blizzard that stopped the rescue attempt afterwards. A couple of hundred people were blinded because they were looking at the fire through single-plane windows. The town was obliterated. Wow. I want to tell that story in the same setup as what Chernobyl was, mm-hmm. six-part HBO miniseries. Yeah. And I want to use all of my old podcast mates to tell yeah. the story. Oh, that'd be amazing. So, you know, I would love, like, I'm currently building on that. And I'd like to, you know, I'd like Dan to direct an episode. Yeah. Um, I think he's got it within himself. And all of my people say, don't don't share this. Don't like, hold your cards. It's not who I am. Yeah. yeah I want to yeah, get it yeah. out there. Yeah. I want people to get behind this and go, yeah, that's something that is a great structure. It's already been told in the structure of Chernobyl, which was, as you know, unbelievable, right? Astounding, yeah. Yeah, unbelievable. So it's already a setup, and it's a story that not many people know. Yeah. And a period drama, 1917. And there are some real heroes that I'm finding through character development right now. Yeah. There was a, a black doctor that was not allowed to work in the hospitals, was one of the main surgeons and like rain rescuers wow. working in and then he went on to develop new medical techniques from the trauma trauma surgery wow. that he made so there is all these characters that i'm finding through this thread yeah. and i work, spoke to a woman who's from nova scotia she works for screen nova scotia which is a giant like production mm-hmm. company her nan was pregnant but really small and they used her when she was pregnant to crawl through the buildings to find people that are trapped underneath the buildings. That's her family member, you know? So there's all these amazing threads of the story that I could tell. Yeah, that sounds astounding. So I want to make that TV series. I love it. I want to be a producer and I want to bring that to the screen. And I want people to be able to be aware of that story. And we've already got all of the right structure behind it. I just need a giant studio and $100 million. Yeah, that's all you need. It's a small ambition, isn't it? That sounds amazing, though. I love the sound of that. Yeah, and lastly, have you ever heard the King of Sealand? No. Two blokes out on Clacton went out and found an old World War II fort, right? And they, this is a great comedy film that needs to be made. And again, you should read it. They then called it, they claimed it to be their own country. Mm-hmm. They sent letters to countries all around the world yeah, saying that yeah, we yeah. are now our own country. Yeah. Well, two German fellas thought, no, fuck that, we're going to take it. And out on the Essex coast, there was an 
on sea battle, like you know, it was like a Fort Bayard setup, yeah, where it involved fireworks and you can have like this Home Alone esque caper between yeah. these, you know, four guys trying to claim this area yeah. as as sea land. And I just, I think that's a really great Wikipedia read yeah. that we can build as a great comedy, which that's doesn't amazing. cost a hundred million dollars. Yeah, but um, yeah, that again needs good script writing, great actors. So, you know, it doesn't even need great actors, just good, like, the banter yeah. of that story. And that story does the round in pubs in this area. Yeah, yeah So people yeah, yeah. know about it. So to be able to tell that, uh, again, something else I want to produce. I so, love it. Yeah. I'm excited for all that's ahead from you, man. It's, Fingers crossed. Yeah. Yeah. Exciting. I mean, I've got to navigate this body and, like, having to put the work in to live how I live. Mm-hmm. But um, it's a mild inconvenience. Yeah. You know, so um, I uh, I want to build. And i got a book coming out. Yeah. So I'm 68,000 words in, telling all of my Harry Potter stories and then navigating what it's like to be disabled and just trying to share my perspective on the way I see the world and what the world has given me before and after my accident. You know how Harry Potter was like the first book to do an adult cover version of the book? Yeah. Are you going to do like a Hollyoaks and... Knights type version of your book that's got all the the filthy stories in as well. <laughs> yeah, because well, you need to appeal to just the standard yeah, the Potter yeah. fans for the regular book, but well, then you can do a X-rated version. Well, that's... my director and, <laughs> and editor, their job was to cut as many inappropriate jokes out of the documentary as possible. Yeah. And my director said we could easily make another film, The Boy Who Lived After Dark, yeah. with all the yeah, dark yeah, yeah, stories yeah. that exactly I've done. That. So yeah, well, I would incorporate those. <laughs> And that's yeah. why I waited so long to tell my story mm-hmm. because Harry Potter means so much to so many people. Yeah. They're rediscovering that story now with their own children. Um, so I didn't want to bring negative attention to what was a beautiful thing and is a beautiful thing at the mm. start. But now I think the audience has grown up enough that they can see my story and they can see how I am as a man through it and how that, you know, that that line, it takes a village to raise a child, mm-hmm. but it takes a village to live with what I live with and to get over the trauma of what I've done. And shining a light on my village and my loved ones was really important. So um, I'm very grateful and very thankful. And to you, your audience members, what you do, Pip, in the industry, you should be really, really proud of yourself. I appreciate that, man. Again, I definitely find that, again, during the pandemic as well, we talked about films being a really important escape. I find that with podcasts as well. I think it can be absolutely key to me when I'm going through rough times to go for a walk and have a podcast on and just process stuff. Honestly, stuff. I, I was going to post-traumatic stress yeah. when I was falling asleep in hospital. I'd hear the noise of, you know, the wire pulling me and the crunch of me breaking my neck because I kept consciousness. Right. You know, do you know what gets me through? At the start, it was Kermode and Mayo, mm. their podcast. And then yeah. my podcast library's got bigger and bigger. And do you know who's the biggest joy of my life? Every week, every Wednesday. Tell me. It's Blind Boy. Of course it is. I, I love him. He's so good. He's so good. Yeah. He's uh, just amazing. And yourself, like I sit there and I listen to you shining light on all these amazing people. Yeah, yeah. And I met Jordan um, when she was doing the my concert for one at home. Yeah, yeah. And now going on to see, like I wrote a script with Jordan. Yeah. And the payment I made for Jordan helped fund her um, theatre up at Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Which was the one that won everything. Which won everything. And now I'm just seeing Jordan everywhere, just absolutely bossing it. So I'm just really proud of her. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And again, just to reiterate, I do think Blind Boy is just 
a national treasure. Just absolutely. <sighs> that podcast, <sighs> the way it sounds, the journeys he goes on. Oh, I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm holding right. I'm holding the audio book yeah. for... I'm about to go to Thailand in the new year just yeah. for a break. And I'm holding the audio book for that. I yeah. can't wait. I listened to The Cat Story yeah. uh, recently. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Napa yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, mate. It's just... He's... Honestly, I, I love him to pieces. And when you speak to him next, please send him... I've reached out a couple of times on Instagram. But please just tell him what he means to I me. Will. I and will. And how he gets me through, you know, some tough times. I'll and brings joy to my life. So yeah. yourself, Blind Boy, all of the podcasters out there, you know, it. you're helping lots of people, you know, just share their perspective in the world. So thank yeah. you. I appreciate that, man. Well, th- well, thank you for taking the time and welcoming to your amazing home. It's no worries. Pleasure, I've got a million more stories. And if you ever want to hash mm-hmm. stuff out. We'll do it again. Man. I'll, we'll I'll, do it again. I'll be an honour to be on your podcast. Thanks for having it. me. Thank you, mate. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was episode 553. As I said, go and watch David's documentary if you haven't. David Holmes, the boy who lived. It's so good. It's an HBO documentary. Of course it's good. HBO don't don't mess around, do they? Yeah, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I've got so many good episodes to come. We're starting the... the the year just hitting the ground running it's non-stop i swear to god keep tuning in week in week out i appreciate you you're a bunch of legends and i will see you next week until then stay safe and stay sane ta-ta <laughs>